getting a little bit late start this morning, which means late finish, as you know. But if your heart's been changed, that really doesn't matter. So if you get upset today, I'll know you've got a real problem. Matthew chapter 15, and I want to turn your attention there because uh, this is the continuing story of the life and ministry of our Lord. This is the Word of God. It speaks to us as strongly today as it did in the time that it was spoken and in the time that it was lived. As I mentioned in the beginning of last week's message, this chapter is one of the defining moments in Jesus' ministry. Here he clearly explains the difference between man's religion and God's religion. Man's religion is one that stresses the external, while God's religion stresses the internal. Man's religion says that if we can clean up the outside, if we can get all of the things that we do outwardly correct, then the inside will be clean. Whereas God's religion says that when the inside is clean then God will help us to keep the outside clean. Now, let me stress a very important difference in, in man's religion and God's religion in this way, that man's religion will always develop rules and procedures to govern a person's life. Whereas God's religion, when God changes our hearts, he's the one that governs our behavior. He's the one that causes us to love him and then also to love our fellow man. There's a radical difference between man's religion and God's religion, but it does have one area of agreement, and that is that something needs to be changed. But the question is, who and what will change it? Now, the Pharisees of Jesus' time, the scribes and Pharisees, recognized that there was a problem. They had their solution to it. But Jesus teaches in this passage, in the first 20 verses of this chapter, that their solution was not really a solution at all. And that's because it never attacked the real problem. It never went to the root of the problem, which is the heart. Every person in the world is suffering from heart trouble. And that's the theme of this section of Scripture. So if you look today at Matthew chapter Uh, 15, verse number 10 is where we want to begin reading. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 15, verse number 10. And remember, we're, we're tied together with everything that's happened in the first nine verses. That was the subject of last week's, last two weeks' messages. So we're still on the same subject here and continuing it. Verse number 10 says, And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch." Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands 
defileth not a man. Father, we thank you for your word and just ask you, Lord, you'd be with us today as we preach. And I pray your Holy Spirit might impress upon us the truths that you'd have us to know today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Everybody agrees there's a problem. If you live before the time of uh, television and satellite images that can be beamed around the world in an instant, you, you might not be aware of the extent of the depravity of the human heart. You might not be aware of the universal extent of depravity, and that's because you would only be able to see the corruption in the area in which you live or in the area of, your limited, of, of limited contact. There's, there's no doubt that sin exists. I mean, anyone who's been born into the world knows that sin exists. You see it in your neighbors. Uh, you should see it in yourself. You, you would hear about crime in your city, and you would know about the places where the liquor stores are, and you would know all about the red light districts that are in town. But you still might wonder, is there a place on this earth, or is there, a, is there another place where the people are not as bad as they are where I live? Well, television has really answered that question for us. The ability to beam satellite images around the world and to see them in an instant on your television or your computer or even on a smartphone as you're sitting in church. That's really answered the question of how far-reaching that this problem is. It is a universal problem. When we listen to the news... Most often we listen to the worst of the news. I mean, that's what it seems like the newscasts are are geared towards. They give us the worst of the news. And so we see often that there are people just that, that can be involved, what seem to be normal people that are involved in some of the worst crimes imaginable. Sometimes on a newscast, you'll see a neighbor that's interviewed on television and they'll say, well, I can't believe that the person next door could ever do something like that. That person was such a nice, quiet person. And yet they've discovered that the person next door is actually a child pornographer. Those kinds of stories are all over the news. And they tell us that anyone, even the most unsuspecting people, are capable of the worst types of sins. And that's why you might find that the next breaking story is something that happens in your town that it's about a pastor or a religious leader somewhere who has taken advantage of an underage child. Now the question is, where does all of that come from? What what is the cause of this ubiquitous presence of evil in the world? Well, we find the answer to that question in Scripture. The answer actually is heart trouble. The answer is the pollution and the defilement that comes from within. And so that means that the problem of sin in the human heart cannot be treated with a topical ointment. The problem can't be treated by something that's external. A cardiologist does not put calamine lotion on your skin to make your heart better. He goes inside. He goes to the root of the problem. He starts to work on the heart. Now, in verses 1 through 9 of this chapter, the scriptures explain that the scribes and the Pharisees had tried to apply their topical ointment. Their solution was that you can clean up the defilement of sin, the pollution of sin in a person, if you take care of the outside. And so they went through all different types of ritualistic cleansing. And in this chapter, it focuses on the washing of hands before they ate. They thought that whatever foods that they had 
they would eat could have been touched by demons. They thought if they ate the food that demons, the results or the effects of demons would be inside of them, that demons would get a chance to get inside. And so their religion dealt with the externals, trying to deal with that problem of pollution that's on the outside of the person. Now, it worked the problem outwardly, whereas the Bible says that we're not to clean up the outside, we're to be concerned with the inside. But they were concerned with externals. They were concerned that they not be defiled by taking care of everything that's external to them. And this is something that had been taught to them for hundreds of years, for centuries. The Jewish people had heard these kinds of things. The elders of the people had put in all sorts of traditions that are not found in God's word. And so when the disciples ate without washing their hands, they transgressed the traditions of the elders. But Jesus countered that by saying their traditions actually transgressed the infallible word of God. Well, he goes on in verse number 10 to show them the real root of the problem, that the real root is on the inside. And as he says in verse number 11, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles, it's what comes out. That sin is an internal problem. It's a problem that affects the external and not the other way around. I'd like you to notice in, in this text today the way that Jesus brings out the different types of pollutions that he wants to speak of. Now, first of all, he talks about the pollution of a foul mouth. And what this is, is really the descriptor or the unmasking of what's on the inside of a person. You listen to a person's conversation. The way that a person speaks gives vent to his innermost thoughts. That comes out through the mouth. Now, if we return for just a moment to the 12th chapter of Matthew, and hopefully this is still somewhat fresh on your mind. It hasn't been all that long since we talked about it. But Jesus says in the 12th chapter, beginning in verse number 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now this is just an excellent parallel passage for us to study here because it shows us that how that a person's heart actually controls his speech, that what's in his heart comes out through his mouth. Now, what Jesus did was to turn to the people with an indictment of the way that they spoke. While the scribes and the Pharisees were very careful about what they put into their mouths, Jesus was more concerned about what came out of their mouths. The Word of God tells us that it is with the mouth that either confession is made unto salvation or there is denial made of Jesus Christ. And as you look at these scribes and Pharisees over this long period of time that we've been talking about them in Jesus' ministry, had they ever showed that there was actually a change of their heart? Was there an inward change where they finally recognized that Jesus was the Christ, or did they continue to reject him because they were still dealing with their idea of how to correct their problems, which is to go about taking care of the external things in man? Now, we notice... We ought to notice that the application is still here about ceremonial cleansing. It's about the law. Now, the mouth itself, the physical mouth, is not the place that can be defiled by something that you eat. 
And when we see that word defile in Scripture, it means the same thing as pollution. It means the same thing as making something unholy or unclean. Now, Jesus shows us here that he's not talking about something that, that is external. He's not talking about something that is physical, but his reference here is to the moral mouth, not the physical, but the spiritual. And what he's talking about here is the expression of language, what actually comes out through our language that tells what our inner thoughts are like. So it's a spiritual principle and not a physical one. The moral mouth can actually be an immoral mouth when it expresses itself in bitterness, in biting words, in cursing, in deception, in unkindness. James spoke of the moral mouth in James 3 verse 6. He said, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Now when James talks about the tongue... Is he talking about that physical organ in your mouth? Is that what he means? Oh, he's not talking about the physical. He's speaking of language. He's talking about the speech of a person and how that will reflect his moral defilement. He said in the second verse of that chapter, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now when James there talks about the perfect man, he means a person who has been changed, a person who has true godly religion, a person who is truly truly regenerate. He guards his words. He guards the things that come out of his mouth. So it's not pollution. It's not bitterness. It's not evil speaking. Not something that shows that he is defiled. But when he speaks, he blesses and he edifies others. Now that kind of moral mouth is one that demonstrates love for God and love for others And according to Jesus, the entire law is comprehended in that. Love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do you see the contrast that he's trying to point out here? It's the internal versus the external. And he's telling us that the external is immaterial. It really doesn't matter. It means nothing as far as your soul is concerned. We listen to the way that Paul explained it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He was dealing with the issue of what people can eat and what they couldn't eat and whether that actually made them right with God. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, But meat, and there he means what you eat, commends us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. He's saying that there's nothing that you do as far as your works are concerned, the external things that you do that are going to make you better or worse in the eyes of God. He says in the 14th chapter of Romans, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now what Jesus is doing here, he's expanding something out that's really mind-boggling and troubling to his own disciples. Now let's see how it affects them. In verse number 12, it says, Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended? After they heard this saying, but he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind, leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So now Jesus is speaking of the pollution of false religion. Now we have to pause here for just a moment to to really think about the impact that these words made on his disciples. They had just 
come out of the Pharisees' religion. They were still the traditionalists, just like all the rest. They had grown up in that Pharisaical system. They were engrossed in that doctrine. And it was a doctrine that, again, placed placed all of the emphasis on the externals. To them, that is religion. The the rituals that you go through, the things that you do, the sum total of religion is nothing but ceremonies that people go through. And that really has some deep implications for us today. And what I have to say this morning may not sit too well with some of you. As you know, I'm not really afraid to chastise other views of Christianity. I don't really much care if I offend people with the truth. Now, the disciples were concerned because, Jesus, you have offended the Pharisees. They are the religious leaders. But Jesus' offense of them was of no concern G. Campbell Morgan said, There is no pity in the word of Jesus for error, no matter by whomsoever the error may be taught. Men who are violating the commandment of God by insisting upon the tradition, men who are hiding that commandment underneath tradition, had no place in his pity. And so I I believe that it's proper for us to follow Jesus' example. The cross, the cross of Christ is offensive by its nature. And so we're never told to try to pretty up the gospel. We're never told to try to dress it up and make it inoffensive. In fact, if your presentation of the gospel doesn't offend someone at some time or another, then you don't have the right gospel. But that be as it may, there are many in the Christian religion that have fallen prey to the pollution of a false religion. And I would be happy if you'd like to, a little bit later on, to discuss Roman Catholicism and tell you why they have failed so miserably at correcting the sexual pollution of the priesthood. And they're always going to have that problem. A a, a religion that deals only with externals and just lots of different rites and rituals is always going to have this problem because it never deals with the heart itself. It never talks about a difference in the heart. But I don't have to venture out to other types of religion today. I don't have to do that because I can stay at home. I mean, I can stay right within our church. I can stay right within our fellowships. And we can talk about the errors of a type of fundamentalism, for instance, that has shifted its focus from the internals, the change of the heart, to the externals, where people are always being taught about the outward appearance. And that is what determines their godliness. And it's not a matter of saying that the physical and the spiritual have no connection because, folks, you don't want to make this mistake. The physical and the spiritual do have a connection. As I said earlier in the 10 o'clock hour, just before we started, there's a different standard between the world and God's people. And even though we don't like so often to talk about laws and things that we make and all different kinds of rules that we make, there is a standard that people live by. And sometimes that standard of the world or often, more often than not, the standard of the world is so far against God that a Christian does not want to fall under and look like and act like that kind of a standard. But what happens, though, is that when the physical is emphasized to the point that people think, well, I just can't live up to the standard of the church, then their hearts have been turned away from the internal cleansing that Christ does to the external cleansing of the things that they do. And in many churches, that's okay, just as long as the standard is kept. And that's when you know something has really gone wrong, when it's not the change of heart 
that actually governs what's on the outside, that it's the rule that's been put in place. And so someone might ask me, well, have you made a rule for women's clothes? Have you made a rule for the length of hair? Have you made a rule for this, that, or the other? And I could only say, what for? Is that rule going to make them holy? Is a rule going to change a person's heart? Will a rule make God love them more? Now, obviously, we can't have drunkards and adulterers be members of the church and serve in the church. Things like that are specifically forbidden in the Scriptures. Folks, let me tell you something. I should not have to make a rule. The church shouldn't have to make a rule because a changed heart ought to be the thing that governs a person's heart. Now, I realize that what happens in a lot of churches, and maybe it can happen here as well, is that people just don't get it. You preach and you preach and you preach about the change that's supposed to take in a person's heart because they have received Christ as the Savior, and yet people are rebellious and stubborn and they go against what God's Word says or they go against what, what should their, their, their manner of life and what they ought to be doing. They go against that, and so people think, well, the best thing to do is just put the rule in place then. Just give a rule to live by. And if a change hasn't taken place in your heart internally... The rule is not really going to do anybody any good. People may live by the rule, but they mask a lot of things that are in their heart that really needs to be changed. Now, what I've seen happen is that people will come to church and they will change not because somebody handed them a big rule book. And I think I told you about this before. There was a person who attended our church once who told me that the rules that he had in their church was so thick I mean, he, he actually gestured to me. He said, it was so thick. I said, I can't keep it anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And so he left that behind. Well, we don't need that. What we need is for the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and to control us from the inside. And if that hasn't happened, then the outside is not going to be cleaned up. No matter what you do, you mask the problem that's underneath. Now, again, quoting from G. Campbell Morgan... And this, this will be on the side of those folks who like to have the standard. It's really on their side because this is what he says what should happen. He said, this is the supreme test of religion. Is our religion a thing of the heart, a communion between our inner life and God, a force that drives us to the watchtower in the morning to catch the gleam of the glory of the pathway of his feet, a passion that sends us back to him with shame and disgust when we have sinned. This is the true religion. And that's the way it ought to be in a Christian's heart if your heart has really been changed when you sin, when you're not living the way that you should, when you don't act, look, and so forth the way that you should, then it ought to drive you to the foot of the cross again and say, what's wrong with my heart? What's wrong with me? If it doesn't drive me back there again to where I confess the sin and say, I want to be right with God and do what God wants me to be, then it's evidence that the change has never taken place in your heart. This is so important, folks, so important that we understand that the inside governs the outside when the heart has been changed. Now listen to this comment. That which is external can neither defile nor sanctify what is within, but the mind and the heart sanctify or defile the outward deed. Now get that last part again. The mind and the heart sanctify or defile the outward deed. We need to consider, what is it that makes up our religion? What is it that our religion is concerned with? 
Is religion in your clothes? Is religion how you comb your hair? Is it in the mechanical things that you do? Is your religion in the fact that you go to church? Did you know that even reading your Bible can become a ritual that has no meaning? And did you know that even going to church can be wrong if it masks a deceived heart? See, there's some people who go to church to, it's just their place to sit and grumble. The church pew is their place of complaint. Now, what they did was they washed their hands by coming to church. They got the outward sign. They showed up. They sit in the pew. They got all the outward looks of a holy religion. But as one preacher said, cheap indeed is the religion of hand washing. Who wouldn't wash his hands all day long is the price of heaven. So the clothes that we wear to church, the traditions that we go through, even the way that we go about a church service can actually become the barriers that shut us out from God. See, what you can do is you can get all warm and fuzzy about the songs that we sing, and you can get emotional about the prayers that are prayed, and you can really get into the sermons. But if that lasts only until you get out the door, then all of it's meaningless. That's not true worship to God. When your heart has been changed, it governs what you do when you step outside of the door. When you go into the parking lot and you go about your business tomorrow, a change in your heart will still be there. The same things that you did in church and worshiping God in the right way are still going to be there. They're going to evidence themselves in your daily walk. So the disciples came to Jesus and they said, don't you understand or didn't you know that the Pharisees are offended? And watch what Jesus says to them. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Folks, those are doctrinal words, very doctrinal words. And I'm going to leave this part of the doctrine alone this morning and just state it in passing, that if you are interested in finding places where God's sovereign election is taught in the Bible, just keep your eyes open. Just keep your eyes open. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Now, let's consider the context of that statement and what we've learned in the course of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 13, he gave the parable of the tares. And I'm not going to go back through all of that, but you remember that Jesus said in that parable that a time of harvest is coming, and when the harvest comes, the tares will be gathered up and burned. And the tares that it refers to are plants that are not planted by the one who sowed the good seed in the field. The enemy sowed the tares, and in the harvest, Jesus says, they're all going to be gathered up and burned. Now, the enemy that he refers to is Satan, and the tares are hearts, or people, represent people, hearts that have not been changed by God. And in the end, which was what the harvest represents, in the end, all of them will be gathered and burned. So Jesus says, you don't need to worry about them. Let them alone. They are the blind leading the blind, and both will fall into the ditch. You know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus really didn't talk about hell in the Bible. Jesus really didn't teach hell. Well, keep your eyes open to that as well, because sometimes Jesus will speak it in very obvious terms like he did in the 13th chapter when he talked about the tares that will be gathered and burned. And he also talked about uh, the the, the cities of of, uh, of that time that rejected his teaching how they were going to suffer hell fire. Sometimes Jesus is very direct when he speaks about the subject of hell. There's no mistaking what he means. And then other times he's a little bit more cryptic in his sayings. He uses the word ditch. He says the blind 
that follow the blind, they're both going to fall into the ditch. What did he mean by that? Well, ditch is actually a word that refers to an open pit, a great big hole in the ground. And so very likely what he's talking about here is that false teachers and those who follow false teachers will fall into the pit of hell. That's the destination for both. Well, what is the blindness of the Pharisees? He says that they are blind. Well, I understand again that Jesus is talking about the spiritual. He's not talking about the physical eyes, that they were blind. Obviously, they could see physically, but he's talking about their own deception. Their blindness is the deception to the truth. What they never did see, what they couldn't understand was the meaning of the ceremonies that God had given. They tried to make those ceremonies the way that they were right with God going through the rituals, going through the hand washings, going through all the different things that they did. This is a way of being made right with God. Whereas God wanted them to see that the ceremony actually pointed to the thing that would make them right with God. All of those ceremonies had to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it had to do with the purification that he brings to us by salvation in him. So he's always trying to lead people to a greater understanding of the principle that's involved. Now, in this case, the greater principle is that God requires purity of the heart. And there shouldn't have been any mystery to this because the Old Testament clearly said it. In the book of 1 Samuel, it says, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And so they had missed that mile marker in the road to salvation because they were blind. And what you don't want to do, you don't want to get in the car with a blind person. Your destination, or their destination, I should say, is your destination. You don't want to get in the car with a blind person. That, that applies to us religiously. You don't want to get into the car. You don't want to get into a religion where people do not have the right answers and they're blinded to the truth. And that fits into what I said about a catechism a moment ago. The catechism has to have the right answers if you're going to be led into truth. Now, God looks at the heart, and that leads us to the third observation, and that is the pollution of a failed heart. Now, you'll notice in the first 20 verses of the chapter that there are three separate addresses. First, Jesus addressed the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones that prompted the question of washing and defilement. The next, he addressed the people, and he talked about the speech of the religious leaders and how that they had transgressed the authority of Scripture by putting their own traditions in the place of Scripture. And thirdly here, he addresses the disciples. Peter said, declare unto us the parable. Now Jesus' answer showed some more exasperation with them. He said, don't you understand this yet? And his explanation is not crude, but it is graphic. And I will point out the illustration and I won't do anything more. I think the explanation stands for itself. He said, do you not in verse 17, do do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft? Now the illustration that he gives is that everything that goes into the body finds its way out of the body. What you eat, and I think you know this, what you eat doesn't go into your heart, does it? And he's saying here, what you eat has nothing to do with the spiritual principle. It doesn't go into your heart. And he means by that, your mind. It doesn't go into your will. It doesn't go into your reasoning factors. What you eat goes into your stomach, 
into the physical place, and then whatever you eat comes out of you. Your body eliminates it. And I think you get the picture there. I don't really believe that I have to explain that any further. Then he goes on to this spiritual principle in verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Let's take a look at that last verse first. The last verse refers to the ceremony. That's the source of this controversy. Washing your hands, Jesus says, makes no difference at all. It has no effect on your spiritual condition. And that's because an outside source can never defile you. That's not the cause of the problem. And if I could recycle that back to the beginning of the message and ask the question again, where does all the evil in the world come from? When you see all those satellite images that are bounced around the world and you see the depth of the depravity of people everywhere, what is the source of all of that evil? And this is the place that makes the gospel so offensive not only to the Pharisees, but to every person that you try to give it to, when you explain to them where this problem of evil comes from. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to blame it on the devil. The devil sits on the hands at night, and the spirits, the evil spirits get inside of you. Blame your problems on the devil. And even sometimes Christians get confused about that. They think that the devil is the cause of all the wrongdoing. Now, the Pharisees thought the lack of washing is what put evil into people. And so it's very offensive for Jesus to say to them, all of the wrong in the world, all of the transgression of the holy commandments, and all of the horrible things that people do is not caused by anything other than a failed heart, a corrupt heart. And so the source of evil is, and are you ready for this? The source of evil is you. And the source of evil is me. It comes from our heart. People are offended by that. They go to psychologists and the psychologist tries to help people out by making excuses for their behavior. And so he'll say, well, it's the environment. It's the way that you were raised. It's the people that you were around. That's what causes your evil and your your." your your evil that you do. It's that overexposure that you have to all the externals that are in your environment. But the truth of the Word of God teaches that we are all well capable of fostering the worst imaginable crimes by the corruption of our own heart. Listen to the way that James describes it. He says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So some people will even go so far as to blame God for their evil. Well, God's the one who made me. God's the one who made me this way. This is why I turned out this way, because God made me this way. Well, James flushes that idea out with the draft very quickly by saying that we are all drawn away by our own lust. It starts with what's inside of us, and it works its way out in the worst imaginable ways. Now, in our text, Jesus enumerates the things that come from the internal corruption of the heart. You find a list here. If you go over to the parallel passage in the book of Mark, you'll find a list there, and it's a little bit different list. 
And he's not saying here that these are the only things that our heart is capable of. But what he's saying is, or the intent is, that all of the evil that happens in the world comes from the corruption of the nature of man. The first one he mentions on the list is evil thoughts. And that's one that really shakes me. So you might be a person that's really, really concerned about the externals of religion. You may be concerned that you're conservative, that you're very careful about outward appearance. Scribes and the Pharisees certainly were. They adjusted and adjusted and readjusted their clothing to make sure it was all right. Their robes were very precise. The borders had to be the exact width, the exact size and shape that they should be. They tied on their phylacteries in a ritualistic way, in a very precise manner. And so on the outside, they appear to be very holy, sanctified, and righteous. Now, do you know what scares me as a pastor? What scares me is if you were able to see beyond the facade of the suit that I'm wearing, and you could look into my heart, and you could see the things that I think. That it was really possible for you to read my thoughts. You know, science fiction has often contemplated that. What if you could actually read another person's thoughts? Well, I read something interesting the other day that scientists at Berkeley about a year ago said that they could measure brain impulses and they could actually tell what a person was thinking. Now, that scares me because the last thing that I want to know is what's going on in your mind as I preach the sermon to you. I don't really want to know what's going on in your mind. What are you thinking about? And it scares me, secondly, because what if you could read my every thought? I'm standing here as your trained professional on the idea of sin, and I know how evil my heart can be. I know how bad that it is. And it scares me most of all because I know this, that God already knows every thought and that God holds people accountable for their even their thoughts. Listen to what happened before the flood, Genesis chapter 6. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God knows every thought. How many of you would be willing today to have every thought examined? Every thought that you think exposed so that people could really see what goes on in your heart. I'm talking about Christian people now. I don't worry about the loss. We know what goes on there. I'm talking about God's people. What if we could see everything that goes on in your mind? Did you know there was someone in the Bible that asked that this very thing be done? He asked for this to be done. David, who had done some wicked things, said this, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know why David was able to ask that of God? Because his heart was changed. He wanted God to examine every one of his thoughts thoroughly, and to cleanse those thoughts, to get rid of all the wickedness that flowed from those thoughts. You might think about that when you're adjusting your clothes, when you're trying to meet a church's standard. What if everybody who was so concerned about those types of things could have their innermost thoughts exposed? What would happen? I suspect that our judgments of people would be radically changed if we could see their thoughts. And then you have these other sins that he mentions, murder, adultery, fornications. 
Have you, have you recognized how often that sexual sins are mentioned in the Bible? It always makes the list. It always makes the list of these terrible things that are put together with murder. God puts sexual sins in with that. That's one of the most prevalent sins. And, and we're not too surprised by that because you know as well as I do, you can't escape the sexual inferences that are made every single day in all types of media. You drive down the highway and look at a billboard. It's advertised for you there. Turn on the television. Don't worry about the programs. Watch the commercials. All of it's geared towards sex, 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 all kinds of sexual perversion. Some of you might even crawl under your seat. If we were to post up here on the screen today some of the things that you put on the Internet some of the things that you put on Facebook or on your tweet, twits or whatever they're called, tweets or whatever they are. I was going to say twits, tweet, but that would not be very good for me to say that to everybody. But all of these things are going on, lying and blasphemy. Every one of them goes on deep down in the human heart. And you think about that. What if we could put all that stuff that you put on the Internet on the screen up there Uh, here's one thing that you really need to recognize. We don't actually have to do that because some people don't seem to have caught on to the idea that when you're on Facebook, every friend on Facebook has friends on Facebook. So when you put out things electronically, they get spread to thousands of people that you don't even know. You expose your sins to all kinds of people. But these things go on, as I said, the lying, the blasphemy, all of that's deep down in the human heart. And the expression of that, the way that Jesus puts it in both Matthew 12 and in this passage, is that those things gush up from your heart, they come up through your throat, and they expel themselves through your mouth. And what it always shows is the corruption and the defilement of the heart. You don't blame the wickedness of the world on anyone but us. So what do you need? Well, if you have a bad heart, if you have a failing heart, if you have heart trouble, what do you need? You need a new heart. How are you going to get a new heart? Well, contra to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said, or the Word of God says, rather, in Titus, the third chapter, Paul speaking to us, said, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not going to come by the externals. It won't come by the good things that you do. It's never going to happen if all that you ever do is change your clothes and wash your hands. You need a new heart that's given by God. And getting a new heart for a failed heart is what the Bible calls being born again being born again. Or in this scripture, it talks about the washing of regeneration. And isn't that an interesting way of putting it in relation to what we've studied here about the washing of hands and the rituals that people go through? The word of God says it's not the ritual. It's the washing of your heart, the washing of regeneration. It's an internal cleansing, not an external. And that internal cleansing comes by faith in Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in him and what he did for you, he washes you clean in his own blood. Now let me give you one more analogy before we close today. Jesus often taught in recognizable illustrations. He taught doctrine in these illustrations that were easy for people to understand. 
So if you're concerned about external religion and external religion is the thing that floats your boat and you like the rituals, you like the ceremonies, that's the thing that you want. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now, as a pastor and growing up in a pastor's home, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've been to a lot of cemeteries. And those places sometimes are very beautiful places to go. You go to the cemetery and you go to the mausoleums and you see the beautiful polished pink granite marble. And you say, what a beautiful thing that that is. But on the inside... There's dead men's bones. In Jesus' time, they would whitewash the tombs and make them appear to be beautiful. And he says, this is what you're like. This is the hypocrisy of a person who tries to clean up the inside when there's nothing that's happened on the inside. You look good. You look good to other people. But God knows your heart. God knows there's nothing on the inside but dead men's bones. So Jesus says all those attempts to pretty up the outside are like that, that you can't change what you are on the inside. Only he can do that. So outward religion stands for hypocrisy and inward religion stands for holiness. And guess what? The Bible says this, without holiness, you will not see God. Now we're concerned... We're concerned about the outside. Sure we are. We're very concerned about the outside. Jesus talks about the outside that's been cleaned up and the inside hasn't. And so we have to be concerned also about the outside that hasn't been cleaned up. And people claim that the inside is. That's a problem, isn't it? That, that, that one there, you think about that theologically, that blows your mind. Now we've got to recycle all these things and go through them. Well, what about this problem? What about people that aren't right on the outside, but they pretend to be right on the inside? And that's where we come back and say, if the Holy Spirit controls your life, if the Holy Spirit is really in there, that outside's going to be different, folks. The outside will be different because the Holy Spirit leads you into a different way of living a different thing to do. And that's why I say, I don't have to make rules for this stuff. If you've been changed on the inside, it's going to be apparent on the outside. I hope that you've been changed. I hope that you know Jesus because he always makes a difference in people's lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the great blessings that you give us. Just the wonderful word of God that is so clear, so plain. It teaches us what you expect from us. And we know that all expectations are centered on what happened at the cross. How are we made right with God? And the only way that we can be right is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And Lord, we do know this, that when our hearts are right, that your Holy Spirit begins to work on the outside. And many people are resisted about that. They, they just don't get it, it seems. Lord, I just pray that you would open up their hearts to understand. Then I, then I pray for people that are maybe here today that are lost and they 
haven't seen these great truths and they wonder where does evil come from? Where, where's all the, where are all the problems coming from? And they don't see that the heart needs to be changed. If their heart, the heart of every person is the cause of all the evil in the world. And Lord, again, only you can change that heart. So I pray that you would speak to them, help them to understand. They find their answers to these questions at the cross of Jesus Christ. That will make a change in every person's heart who believes. Bless us as we sing today. Speak to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.